Hey everyone, I'm Ian Shapiro and you are listening to Politics Explained and we have a few of Trump's tweets to explain. Let's get to some China-North Korea action. Donald Trump tweets, I am very disappointed in China. Our foolish past leaders have allowed them to make hundreds of billions of dollars a year in trade, yet they do nothing for us with North Korea. Just talk. We will no longer allow this to continue. China could easily solve this problem. This problem is, of course, referring to North Korea. Past leaders are, of course, referring probably just to Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and John Kerry. And when Trump talks about China making hundreds of billions of dollars, he is talking about the trade deficit with China. Talk to any economist and you'll understand why a trade deficit is not the worst thing in the world to happen. Donald Trump also turns his view back to Washington in his tweets this morning saying, don't give up Republican Senate the world is watching. Repeal and replace. And go to 51 votes. Nuke option. Get cross state lines and more. Here Donald Trump is referring to the failed repeal and replacement effort over this last week by Republican senators led by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Following the failure of a series of votes in the vote a rama near midnight on Friday, Donald Trump began tweeting about how our institutions and their rules need to change in order that he can get a political win. Those are Trump's tweets explained. You're listening to Politics Explained. I'm Ian. Shapiro. Hey, Ian, I just had a quick question for you. Um, right now, I was thinking about the, the number of people in the Senate, and right now, I think we have 52 Republicans, um, and you know, the rest are Democrats and, and independents. I was just wondering, what's the biggest uh, like discrepancy we've ever had in the Senate? Like, was there a time when there were 90 Republicans and or, you know, or some uh, political party? Um, just wondering if it's like, a big deal that there's 52 to, you know, to 48 right now, or if that's pretty typical and it just kind of goes back and forth. Thanks so much. Just wondering. So if we observe control of the House and the Senate by partisanship over the last 67 years, you do see some patterns emerge. For instance, in the House of Representatives, we see that from about 1955 to the 1994 elections, the Democratic Party had an iron grip over the House of Representatives. This was, you know, a, a big moment in 1994 when Newt Gingrich and the Republicans' contract with America was able to finally swing the House out of the Democratic Party's control. A lot of individuals also look at this as the beginning of conditional party government and where partisanship among elites really began to take off. But that's the House of Representatives, and Maya's question was also about the Senate. What kind of proportions have we been juggling? Is it always 48 to 52, with a vice president almost always around to cast a deciding vote? Or have we had kind of like landslide majorities, so to speak? Or filibuster-proof majorities? And the honest answer is, well, all of the above. Since the 1950s to present day, we've had everything from, you know, 67 of one party and only 33 of the other party honestly having a two-thirds majority of the Senate, to having years like after the 2000 presidential election where the Senate was basically split down the middle 50-50 Republican-Democrat. 
The only real trend over you know tightness versus landslidiness of uh, the composition of the Senate that I can say from just looking at observational data is that there is usually more than a two-person lead on one side or the other. And so you could call this a very narrow majority for the Republican Party here now in 2017. Thanks for the question, Maya. Hey everyone, this is Ian Shapiro, the host of Politics Explained, just reminding you that if you are on the Anchor Tap, the tap, the Anchor Tap, if you're on the Anchor Tap, don't forget to app or tap on the app to favorite Politics Explained. You can also call into the station if you want to contribute to the discussion or if you want me to help clarify something crazy going on in politics over the week. Uh, in fact, we've also got some people who will call in to say really nice things and to you know dredge up uh, some interesting points that we make during the show. So if you want to be one of those people, uh, then go ahead and click that call-in button if you're on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you're getting this as a podcast. Download the Anchor app so that you can join in the conversation with me and so many other individuals. Uh, and so I'll leave you with a call-in and then my response so you can see just how cool this feature is. I'm Ian Shapiro. You're listening to Politics Explained. Now let's get to the politics. Love your position on how Congress actually operates in the real world. It's 100% true. We can't seem to get by the title of Republican or Democrat, and I love that you are somebody who realizes that, and I love your analysis of everything is just about getting reelected. So um, keep it up. Love the politics rundown, and um, keep going. When it comes to how I like kind of have this insight and analysis into how Congress operates, there's a few different books that you can check out for yourself. Some of them are kind of textbookish, but others are written by uh, you know political science for the purpose of kind of extending the literature and our knowledge of the institution. Uh, so you can really look at you know for the textbook Congress things like analyzing Congress. Uh, you can look at uh, any of Olzek's work. But if you want to really like understand the modern Congress. Mayhew's The Electoral Connection does a really good job of at least helping us understand the constituency side, right? So if we assume that members of Congress are single-minded seekers of re-election, then we can kind of understand the rest of their activities in government, right? They want to take positions on issues. They want to make those positions known to their constituents and to their party. And they also want to credit claim, right? They want to bring home the bacon for the people who they are serving. And in order to do these things, like bringing home the bacon, credit claiming, you do actually have to craft and pass legislation, right? And in order to make sure that that happens, you need to gain power and prestige within your party or your committee or your partisan caucus. And how do you gain power and prestige? Well, you derive expertise over time. And how are you there for a long time? You have to get re-elected. That's why we think of re-election as the proximate goal, right? It's at the front of the mind of every politician up in Washington. And while it may seem like congressmen are always in uh, campaign mode, you know, it, it can be for personal greed, but also logically we've just walked through the steps of why you kind of have to be always thinking about re-election in order to get anything else done. That's how a democratic system with frequent elections works. Take it or leave it. 
Anyway, if anybody wants more reading on Congress and partisanship within Congress, the two books that I can really recommend to you are uh, Mayhew's The Electoral Connection. And if you want to learn more about partisan ideological polarization among elites in the United States, then you can look at a book called The Disappearing Center by Alan Abramowitz. He's a professor of political science at, I believe, Emory University. I don't think he's changed positions recently. Anyway, thanks for the call-in, and I'll talk to everyone in just a sec. While healthcare debate has been going on in the Senate, the House of Representatives has been hard at work finishing up a budget. And in that budget, there is, among other things, a highly controversial topic that has been, well, afforded some money in the House budget. This topic is Trump's border wall between the United States and Mexico. And among all of Trump's policy decisions, Trump's least popular one internationally is the border wall. According to a Pew Research survey of 37 different countries, the border wall is more unpopular than the United States pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. It is more unpopular than things like the travel ban. It is more unpopular than Trump uh, being withholding about supporting uh, major trade agreements and things like supporting NAFTA or NATO, you know, any of those N-based acronym policy pieces. You could probably guess this already, but there was also a regional effect. Even though overall the wall was the least popular Trump policy proposal internationally, it was especially unpopular in Latin America, where you had about three quarters or more of the countries in that area saying that they highly disagree with the proposal. Interestingly enough, it was also really, really unpopular in places like Canada. Now here's the really cool thing. I framed this as an international study, but we also have data within the United States. And building a wall on the border between the United States and Mexico is also the most polarizing issue between Republicans and Democrats. It's more polarizing than the travel ban. It's more polarizing between Republicans and Democrats on pulling out of international climate agreements. It's this is a big deal. I mean, Donald Trump did kind of put his campaign on the foundation of build the wall. Uh, so it's been interesting that this has been such an enduring uh, policy proposal that people have really strong positions on. For more on Donald Trump's policy positions and public opinion on them, both here and abroad, you're listening to Politics Explained. I'm Ian Shapiro.